Welcome to BIB Today, the daily business show from the journalists at Business in Vancouver. I'm Haley Wooden. Yesterday on the show, we looked at the politics and priorities of President Biden and what they might mean for us here in Canada. Today, we hone in on trade and investment. I'm joined by Carlo Dade, Director of the Trade and Investment Centre at the Canada West Foundation. Carlo, great to have you back. Hey, Haley. Good to be back with you again. Are you expecting that we now see some normalcy or a return to normalcy in Canada-U.S. trade relations under President Biden? Oh, absolutely. Um, Obviously, that's a good thing because normalcy means movement from extraordinary or unusual circumstances. And certainly with the many adjectives that will be used about the Trump administration, extraordinary and unusual in the negative sense will certainly apply. So we lose what I prefer to often as the tweet of Damocles, the sudden worry about that 2 a.m. tweet from President Trump invoking the extraordinary emergency powers he had, national security tariffs on autos, on steel, what he did to Mexico, threatening to tax everything across the border. We lose that and we get back to the good old days of software lumber, country of origin labeling, and the other issues that plague the border. So it seems kind of bizarre to think of a return to fighting over softwood lumber as a good old days. But yes, given what we've been through, it, it certainly looks that way. Those good old normal problems. Speaking of those issues, do we know where Biden stands on things like softwood or dairy? No, we don't. But I, again, in the return to the analysis, I expect those to fall in the usual range of responses from a U.S. president. So these decisions are driven partially by economic uh, concerns, partially by security concerns occasionally, but they're really driven by domestic politics. Uh, The same way the dairy policy, supply management in Canada is driven by domestic politics. We see the same thing in the U.S. with softwood and also things like Keystone, uh, which I argue was a decision based largely on domestic politics. So I expect the debates around domestic politics to confine Biden the same way they confined uh, his predecessors. Let's talk a bit more in depth about Keystone. Shouldn't have been a surprise. Biden has been very clear that he opposed the project. What does it mean and how significant is it for Canada-U.S. relations beyond, say, the immediate term? Well, it's, you're certainly right. It was clear. Steph Feldman, who was his director of policy during the campaign, not only said unequivocally that they were going to rescind it, she also made reference to doing it in the Roosevelt. Um, that sort of specificity is, is something to sit up and take notice about. But, you know, the, my take on Keystone is the decision was part of the desire for the U.S. to transition to fossil fuels. Biden's been very clear about this. Uh, it's a personal belief and something that I've been told about which he's passionate. But this transition means cutting the rate of growth or cutting the growth of consumption of oil from places like the oil sands. It's not a rejection of taking oil from the oil sands. It's a rejection of increasing the amount that the U.S. is taking. They want to tamp back the rate of growth. If you think about quitting smoking or quitting anything, There are two ways to do it. You can go cold turkey, or you can gradually cut back. There's no way, shape, or form that the American public is ready to go cold turkey or boil. 
Therefore, you're talking about transitioning, a gradual process. And indeed, I think Keystone signals this, the American seriousness about this. That's the rate of growth, but it makes the current oil that they take from Canada all the more important. If you cut back this extra room from Canada, you certainly don't have room to cut back further and not uh, challenge the lifestyle uh, to which the American people have become accustomed and to threaten harm to the U.S. economy. We are in many ways, as you know, a divided nation when it comes to the oil sands and balancing economic development of oil and gas with environmental concerns. Biden now has what has been described as a very ambitious, even aggressive plan to address climate issues. What do you think that means for us here in Canada in terms of opportunities, but also maybe in terms of pivoting away from the way we've done things for so long? Well, let me actually argue that, you know, uh, the Canadians are in favor of or comfortable with responsible exploitation of natural resources. Uh, and certainly the oil sands and the industry in Alberta has moved. You can argue willingly, begrudgingly, but I don't think you can argue on the facts that they haven't actually started to move the numbers on GHG emissions in terms of consultations and other things. This isn't your grandfather's um, oil industry by any stretch of the imagination. So, so the question is, is this enough in line with where the U.S. administration is going? We're going to have to see where they go in terms of things like, are they going to set a price on carbon? Um, are they going to continue with thinking about the border adjustment tax? I think now the Americans have come back into line with most of the OECD countries, certainly the Europeans, uh, and others, and they come back in line with Canada. So I think there are opportunities if we really pivot to wait to see what the Americans do and look to join with them. Joint standards for production of electric vehicles, having a Canada, US, and potentially even Mexico, the North American uh, set of regulations and policy would enable us all to benefit from the shift. Again, it's not just Biden. You had, if you go back to what, 2007 or so, you have the Western Climate Initiative with not just California, but states like Montana, British Columbia, uh, Manitoba, Ontario, Arizona, joining together in a path uh, to reduce, uh, to, to work on climate uh, goals. And the Atlantic provinces and the New England governors have set common targets. So this working together on climate has actually been going on at the at the subnational, the state federal or the state provincial level for a while. So I, I don't see this as that big a challenge for us. We've done it at the state provincial level, we've done it at the federal level, and certainly uh, we can further align the Americans as they get serious about reducing GHGs and dealing with climate change. I know we have a fairly strong clean tech sector here in Canada. Are we in for some competition? from neighbors to the south as the U.S. spends more and invests more in climate change, climate energy related innovation? Certainly from the Americans, but also from the Chinese. So back in November, China just finished, I think it was the fifth plenum of the 14th, hardly the 14th plenum of the fifth, uh, I, I can't keep track with, with, with the Chinese government. But plenum sets the target or, or sets the general policy direction for the five-year plan. And we're going to see the next five-year plan come out in March. The plenum of targeted uh, clean tech, uh, China's done this before, 
but we're going to see further competition, not just from the Americans in the sector, but also from the Chinese. And opportunities to sell and work on both our largest export market and our second largest trading partner um, on these issues. Speaking of China, I, we've discussed at length President, former President Trump's relationship with China that has been tumultuous over the last four years. What do we know about how President Biden might treat China differently? Hmm. Well, everything we're seeing uh, indicates a continuation. Uh, his nominee, I believe it was for Secretary of State, uh, was being questioned in the Senate. And you know, I think it was Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, the Republican, asked him if he was basically the question was more or less in agreement with Trump's position on China and taking a tougher stance on China. And the secretary gave a the secretary designate gave a one word answer. Yes. Not a lot of nuance are going into details. So I think the hard line towards China will continue, which poses an interesting question for Canada. We cooperate with the US where our interests converge on security matters, um, things like dealing with Huawei. Uh, but where our interests diverge on the trade front, where we compete with the Americans, we really have to be upfront and clear about protecting Canadian interests. In China, that means protecting agricultural trade, amongst other things. You remember in the NAFTA negotiations, the Americans told us not to even dare think about you know, signing an agreement or negotiating with China. But what were the Americans doing while they told us that? They were negotiating their own agreement with China that they signed a couple months after NAFTA, and that really just you know, leaped over Canadian farmers. They shipped us in the back. So we really have to be clear that we do cooperate with the Americans, but we also compete with them. And we have to keep those two realities in mind as we think about engagement, again, with our largest trading partner and our second largest trading partner. And with China, trade's been growing at something like 12% a year, year in, year out. Good times, bad times. So we really have to manage those two. This is what John Diefenbaker did back in the 50s. Uh, he fought with Eisenhower and Kennedy over breaking the U.S. embargo on grain sales to China. We broke the embargo. So this isn't a new issue for us, managing relations with the U.S. and managing relations with China. Uh, competition, cooperation, both. Trade between Canada and China may be strong, but our political relations have been fairly tense. What barriers do we need to overcome here in Canada to begin a thawing of those relations? What are some of the, the things that are in the way? And I, I could point to one. I think the Meng Wanzhou case ongoing is probably a bit of an issue. Exactly. And the, the hostage situation. You know, China's taken Canadian hostages in the past, and they've continued with that. Um, that is unfortunately going to remain a, I don't, you have to hope that one resolves the other. Uh, Biden administration drops the charges or asks the, the, the Attorney General in New York to drop the charges or decides to come up with some other bargain and we get the hostages back in exchange. That certainly would move us along. But again, I think the larger problem is a mental barrier in Canada that does not seem to exist in Australia, New Zealand, Europe, or the United States. Each of these countries or groups of countries is engaged in a struggle with China, uh, fighting on political issues, uh, relations are tense. 
uh, there are significant problems in the relationship. Yet each of these other countries or groups of countries has managed to, at the same time, dealing with China on political issues and fighting with China, has managed to keep trade relationship or manage the trade relationship. Europe just signed a trade agreement with China. New Zealand and Australia, and you see what Australia is going through, haven't rescinded their trade agreements with China. They've signed yet another trade agreement with China, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. And the Americans, well, while waging an almost hot war with China, they managed to sign their first trade agreement with China, the phase one agreement. So everyone else except Canada seems to have figured out a path to dealing with the two realities or the two sides of China. So the biggest barrier for us is taking a look at our competitors and realizing that um, not engaging China doesn't help us, it only helps them. They figured out how to do both. We need to figure out how to do both. I think that's a mental block in Ottawa and elsewhere. Final question, Carlo, what are some of the biggest trends or issues related to trade you're going to be watching as 2021 progresses? Um, <laughs> that's always the one that you hate to see this time next year or, or, or December, <laughs> 11 months from now, and you kind of smack your head and go, God, I was way off about that. But I think certainly, uh, looking to manage the relationship with the U.S. and China, trying to balance those two. Engagement in Asia. Uh, the federal government is just released notice that they're thinking about bilateral trade negotiations with Indonesia, a new trade agreement with Indonesia. Yet we see the trend from our competitors in looking at multilateral agreements. So rather than add to the confusion of separate rules for country A, separate rules for country B, separate rules for country C, our competitors are looking at larger comprehensive regional agreements like the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership or joining the TPP. So the question is, is Canada going to continue down the old path of bilateral agreements or are we going to wise up and uh, catch up with our competitors and look more to A, Strengthening the TPP, B, instead of signing an agreement with one country, Indonesia, trying to get into the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is the largest trade bloc in the world, and uh, moving in that direction. Interesting. Lots to watch on the trade front. Carlo, as always, great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Take care. That's Carlo Dade. He's the director of the Trade and Investment Center at the Canada West Foundation. This has been BIV Today. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with a new episode of our show tomorrow.